Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an otolaryngologist provides some solutions for communicating while wearing a mask. A lot of the patients that I see have underlying hearing impairment. And so when we further compromise their ability to, to communicate by removing visual cues, it can take a challenging situation and make it uh, untenable, frankly. A vision researcher and ophthalmologist talks about keeping our eyes healthy. Having a healthy diet, a lot of green leafy vegetables, colorful fruit, that's the perfect combination to maintain a healthy, vibrant eyesight. And the chief of thoracic surgery discusses the early warning signs of esophageal cancer. The most important symptom for an esophageal cancer is difficulty swallowing. Most patients will suffer with some form of a blockage somewhere behind their breastbone. All that along with a visit from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, an ophthalmologist talks about retinal diseases and how to keep our eyes healthy. Then, the chief of thoracic surgery addresses reflux and esophageal cancer. But first, an otolaryngologist talks about mask wearing for people with hearing loss. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Most of us have been following public health guidelines of wearing a mask that covers our mouth and nose when we're in public. But what are the challenges for people who have hearing loss? I'm talking about this with Dr. Brian Nicholas. He's an associate professor of otolaryngology at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Nicholas. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, it seems like mask wearing is going to be with us for a while, and I hadn't realized how much I relied on being able to see the bottom half of people's faces just to sort of understand their mood and what and what they're saying. Um, and and it made me think, you know, how are people who have a hearing impairment how are they coping with this? Uh, well, it's a great question. It's a question uh, that that I see in in, in practice really every day. Um, a lot of the patients that I see have underlying hearing impairment. And so when we further compromise their ability to, to communicate by removing visual cues, it can take a challenging situation and make it uh, untenable, frankly. All of us, whether we have a hearing impairment or not, um, really do use our eyes to pick up what our ears miss. And so there's really a few issues with, with the use of masks that, that um, are germane to that. One is that the masks simply are a barrier and they muffle sound. Um, so that is problematic for those of us who have near normal or mild hearing loss, and it's it's doubly problematic for folks who have uh, a larger deficit than that. Um, and it, it, the sound uh, in particular that gets that gets muffled frequently are, are the high pitches, which are the consonant sounds. Which often dictate not whether we can hear something, but how clear the words are. And so we can hear that somebody's saying something to us, but our ability to differentiate one word from the other without those high pitched consonant sounds is often very difficult. So there is the, 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 the barrier of the mask itself and how it muffles our sound. But uh, another big issue is, is its removal of our um, visual cues. And that's really facial expressions, uh, whether we're smiling or um, giving a, a wry smirk, or whether the the receiver can see our lip movements. Um, one of the things that happens is as we lose hearing, we start uh, compensating subconsciously, and we use our eyes to look at lip movements to help augment our own natural hearing. Um, so there are several issues really at play that masks um, relate to, and it is uh, a big problem for those with significant hearing loss and even those with, with, without uh, significant loss, or maybe those patients or, or folks who don't wear hearing aids are just now finding out that maybe they could consider them. 
Well, and, and if if the sound is muffled, I think our instinct is to lean closer and that's really not what we should be doing right now, right? So that's exactly that's exactly right. In this era of, of social distancing and masking, you're you're compounding the issue by removing visual cues, but also adding distance between speakers. So um, that has to do with something called the signal to noise ratio. And when you remove in space, uh, one's voice from the receiver or the ear, um, that ratio becomes less favorable. And the background noise, and in almost every environment, there's some background noise, that becomes more audible related to the person's voice who you're trying to hear. And I've noticed too, some people have eyes that are more expressive than others. So you might be able to, it might help you with some people, um, just their eyes, but others, others, it becomes, you know, it's difficult to understand what they're trying to convey. That's exactly right. And so, um, you know, these are little nuanced things that uh, probably to this point weren't really all that appreciated or recognized, um, but how expressive the upper third of our faces really is something that um, goes a long way to aiding communication. Um, and that's something that is um, quite variable from person to person. Have you heard of people that are feeling like they're developing hearing loss, but it's really because of all of the muffled voices? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely folks who have, they might have a mild hearing loss um, and the barrier of the masks themselves is enough to sort of tip them over the edge. Um, but then also it, it it highlights how much we've been augmenting our, our hearing with the use of our eyes. And so in my own practice, we've seen a, 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 an influx of patients um, coming in either that they've noticed or their, their loved ones have noticed um, their hearing isn't quite so good. And it's not that they just now developed the hearing loss, it's that they were probably compensating reasonably well until the, the ability to, uh, to use their visual cues was taken away. Now, what about people who read lips? Are, I've seen these masks that sort of have a see-through opening or something. Are you supportive of masks like that? Yes. Um, so there are masks that have clear um, fronts to them. Um, even some masks with, with clear fronts that are medical grade and that have been approved by the FDA. Um, so these are, um, these are incredibly helpful for day-to-day -day use, um, but also particularly in the medical setting. Um, communication is, is, is essential uh, in the provider-patient relationship. And um, when that gets compromised by one's inability to, to hear or to, to see, um, you, there's great worry that those relationships will suffer. So in, in the healthcare setting in particular, uh, clear face masks are, are incredibly useful. So if someone wanted to purchase these, because I, I don't imagine they're easy to make, would you search for clear face mask? Is that how you would be able to find, you know, that's good exactly, quality? That's exactly right. Yep. So okay. they, they're out there. And, you know, I wish I could say that these were, were cheap and affordable, but um, they, they range considerably in price, but um, they, are, they are somewhat pricey. Um, there are do-it-yourself um, uh, instructions out there and, and guidelines and videos on YouTube that folks have posted um, and just requiring a fair amount of, of, of skill and, and material. Um, if you think of um, sort of that, that clear tough plastic that you might get at a, from a tote bag at a, at a sporting event or something, if they're giving them away, right. that's sort of the material that is used um, for the clear window. And then how you affix that to the cutout portion of a mask is the other part that really might require a little bit of, uh, of um, uh, technical ability, whether sewing or, or using uh, a type of epoxy or glue. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with otolaryngologist Dr. Brian Nicholas about the challenges of mask wearing for people who have hearing loss. So let me ask you about people who wear hearing aids or, or those who have a cochlear implant. Do the loops from the face masks interfere with the devices? Um, they can. Um, more often, it's, it's discomfort. Um, cochlear implants traditionally 
would have an over the ear part, or we would call it a BTE behind the ear part, and then a little coil connecting to a magnetic part that's worn above and behind the ear. So fitting the loop of, an, of a mask uh, to that region is a little problematic. Um, but more recently, the cochlear implant companies have um, developed processors that don't have the traditional behind the ear part. And so if it's just a magnetic disc worn off the ear, the ear loops are fine. Similarly, hearing aids, which are far, far, far more prevalent than cochlear implants, um, come in all sorts of variations. Um, traditionally, they are worn uh, above and slightly behind the ear, and that's called, again, a behind-the-ear aid. And the uh, loops can interfere. You can hear a rustling sound, and there can be some discomfort. So um, there certainly are um, other alternatives to ear loop masks that can be worn for people who have an aid or an implant or other appliance on the ear itself. So whether these are masks that have ties to them or some that uh, sort of go around the back of the neck, um, as long as it covers um, adequately the nose and the mouth uh, and to the sides as well, then um, those masks are suitable. Well, is uh, having a hearing aid, is that a, a reason not to wear a mask? I, I'm, I've heard that there are some exemptions for mask wearing, but is a hearing aid one of the exemptions? Um, Specifically, no. So the CDC does have exemptions for mask wearing, but it's more related to hearing impaired folks um, rather than um, specifically hearing aid users. And the guidance is more based on the ability of the hearing impaired person to receive sound um, and whether the person who they're speaking to is required to wear the mask. So the CDC states that um, Folks who are hearing impaired or communicating with someone who isn't hearing impaired um, have an exemption when the ability to see the mouth is essential for communication. So there are ways to um, communicate verbally with folks who have hearing impairment, um, like reducing background noise and other, other techniques um, that may allow for the use of masks, but that is an exemption from the CDC. Well, let's go over, because I wanted to ask your advice for someone who is not hard of hearing. What can they do when they encounter someone who is hard of hearing? How can they help improve communication? You mentioned reducing background noise, which, I mean, that may mean changing locations, right? You can't turn the noise off at, at the grocery store. That's that's right. I mean, there are certainly times where we have a greater ability to control background noise than others. A car, for instance, is is um, incredibly loud. Just the passing traffic or horns or um, maybe music. So things in a car that we can control are the windows being up and the fan of the heater or the air conditioning being low and the music being off. Um, these are ways that we can limit background noise in an otherwise challenging environment. But there are other ways. I mean, certainly facing the person you're speaking to, ensuring that the person you're speaking to, uh, that you have their attention uh, so that they know you're speaking to them. And uh, a really big, big thing is speaking slowly and speaking slightly louder. So hearing impaired folks often have what's called a reduced dynamic range. Um, for somebody who's got normal hearing, they might be able to hear zero, five decibels, and they can tolerate 100, 105, 110 decibels. And we would call that difference a dynamic range of, in this case, 100 or 105 decibels. Folks with hearing impairment, it often needs to be louder for them to hear it, let's say 50 decibels. But if it's 75 decibels, it's too loud and they can't tolerate that. And the, the words become more distorted at louder uh, levels. So slightly louder and being conscious of not shouting is, is important. So speaking slowly and slightly louder. And then there are other, other means of communicating, whether it's speech to text software or low tech options like a tablet and pen or a whiteboard. So these are, these are ways that, um, we found have, uh, allowed, um, uh, improved communication in what is uh, quite a challenging situation. Are there apps that translate speech into text in real time that you endorse? 
Are you familiar uh, with any that work really well? Yeah, there are. There's some wonderful um, apps that are out there. And, you know, like a lot of these things, I learn about them from my patients. Um, I have a patient who's awaiting cochlear implantation, and she has an app that just, it, it was profound how, how well it worked, to be honest with you. Um, and it allows her and I and uh, her husband actually to all sort of communicate and it, 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 it picks up all of this sound and she does a good job of separating what's coming from me versus what's coming from her husband. And that can get a little jumbled, but there are certainly apps. Um, some of them are free. Um, others um, require, you know, $2 or $3 a month. Um, the one that we've been uh, using uh, at work is something called Live Transcribe. And that's been uh, a really useful app for our patients uh, where doing those other techniques help, but they don't help quite enough. So live transcribe. And so, I mean, this could be for something who, someone who is just having problems now that doesn't really have a diagnosed hearing deficiency, but they're having challenges because everyone's in a mask now. That might be something that would help the person. Absolutely. And, and, and it's similar to, to closed captioning. I mean, I get asked maybe, I don't know, a couple times a week um, by uh, folks who have always or recently anyway found that closed captioning on the TV has really helped them. And they've never noticed a hearing loss prior to that. So sometimes whether there's an accent or somebody speaking really fast and you just might miss a little bit, it's enough to get you behind the eight ball. So using text, um, if the technology is there to keep up, and that's always been the challenge, but if the technology is there to keep up with normal conversational speech, then it's really wonderful technology. A lot of the video platforms um, are um, separating themselves, and we're all familiar with Zoom and WebEx and others now, um, but many of them have voice-to-text uh, software built in so that if somebody's on a work uh, Zoom or something or a work meeting uh, remotely, um, they have the ability to see on the screen what the speaker is actually actually saying. Well, that's really good to know. Now, let me ask you, we're, we're all wearing masks now, but hopefully this won't go on indefinitely. Right. Fast forward into the future when we don't have to wear masks anymore. Will our bodies naturally go back to being able to interpret you know, from people's mouths, or are we going to have to relearn or reteach our brains how to sort of help us understand? That's a great question. I, I suspect um, we will sort of do it subconsciously the way we did it the first time. And um, very often it's not until our visual cues are taken away that we realize how much we relied on them. And I think once we're given that ability back, it will, it will happen seamlessly that we, we, we do that again. Um, so I don't think it will be a conscious relearning. I think more likely it will be a, a subconscious uh, and rapid relearning. Well, this has been very helpful. Thank you so much to Dr. Brian Nicholas. He's an associate professor of otolaryngology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Are carrots good for your eyes? Stay tuned to Upstate's HealthLink on Air to find out. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Especially as we get older, maintaining retina health is one way to help preserve good vision. Today, I'm talking with researcher Dr. Amir Yazdaner, an assistant professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences, neuroscience and physiology at Upstate. Thank you for making time to speak with me, Dr. Yazdaner. Of course, glad to be here with you guys today. Well, retinal disease is a leading cause of blindness, so I wanted to ask you what people can do to keep their eyes healthy. Are there risk factors that increase someone's chances of developing retinal disease? Uh, definitely there are risk factors. Um, some parts of the factors are related to um, your pedigree, your family, what kind of genes you have and what kind of eye disease uh, run in your family. 
And most of the time, we won't be able to modify any of those genetic risk factors. Uh, there are some environmental factors as well, uh, such as how you behave, your diet, exercise, and your habits. And now we know that a lot of red mole disease are uh, basically uh, get worse uh, with a lot of um, environmental factors, I must say. For example, lack of nutrients, lack of vitamins is one of the risk factors that can uh, make your retinal disease worse. Smoking is another huge risk factor uh, for diabetic disease, for age-related macular disease, or even for inherited retinal disease. When a patient is a smoker, uh, we always see that the progression of the disease is much, much faster. So just to summarize, I should say there are a variety of genetic and also environmental factors that we can actually modify them to the best of our knowledge, and this way we can slow down the progression of retinal disease. Now, some of us grew up being told to eat carrots because they were good for our eyes. Is, is there any truth to that? <laughs> That's a very good point. I, I remember my mom actually told me the same thing when I was growing up. I think it's a valid point, and it's a good example of how we can have a healthy diet and healthy habits, actually. Um, have, eating carrots, per se, provides a lot of nutrients, including vitamin A, which is very fundamental for the function of your uh, photoreceptors, which are basically the cells in your retina that capture the light and um, translate into the image. But beyond that, uh, I think, um, you know, this recommendation actually points towards having a better, healthy diet, healthier snacks, and eating a lot of leafy vegetables, a lot of fruit and fish, olive oil. So overall, I think the recommendation is having a healthy diet, something closer to Mediterranean lifestyle, a lot of green leafy vegetables, colorful fruits, fish, and olive oil. That's the perfect combination to maintain a healthy and vibrant eyesight. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the symptoms. How would someone know that something might be wrong with their retina? That's a good question. Uh, I have to kind of put different people in different categories. Obviously, at the younger age, the, the symptoms and the signs that can be picked up by the teachers, by the family, by, by, the, by the physicians would be different from older age. At younger age, we do see a lot of um, uh, abnormal movement of the eye. For example, if the eye doesn't see well, uh, they tend to kind of drift inward or outward. That could be one of the early signs that there is something wrong with the eye, either a retinal disease or the corneal problem or even like an opacification of the lens. And most of the time, kids, they present or they manifest with like a change of the behavior as well. Uh, when we look at like an older age, when patient can verbalize very well what, is, what are the problems, usually they present uh, their symptoms such as blurriness, um, not having like normal peripheral vision. Sometimes they come to us and they complain of not being able to drive at nighttime, for example, or they have a lot of halos or glare when they are driving at nighttime and the cars are coming from the opposite uh, direction. In, you know, uh, very sight-threatening uh, visual problems, such as retinal detachment, for example, usually they come in with flashes of light, um, significant number of floaters, or even vision loss. So based on the age and also the type of the disease they have, they, they come to us with different presentation. Obviously, they have different symptoms. So I want to get into some of the research you're involved with, but first I feel like we need to talk about what retinopathy is, because I know you've got some, some papers published on that recently. What is retinopathy? So I usually use this analogy to explain to my patient that what is retina. I usually tell them that just remember one of those uh, old cameras, there is a lens in the front and there is a film in the back. That film in the, in the inside of the camera is your retina. And it's made of vasculatures and also multiple layers of cells and the function of these cells that they are uh, coordinated together is to capture the light and translate it into electrical signal that goes into your brain and it will be processed there and we create a picture. So when we talk about retinopathy, we are talking about a variety of disease 
that can affect the function of the retinal vasculature or each one of those cells that basically provide the retinal function. And we have variety of disease, such as like a systemic disorder, as simple as high blood pressure, that can affect the function of the retina in terms of the vascular flow and damage into the retinal tissue. We have systemic problems such as diabetes that can damage the retinal vasculature as well as a neurosensory retina. And we do have some inherited retinal disease that specifically they can target uh, photoreceptors or the cells that basically capture the light and create the image. So overall, if I want to summarize, the retinopathy is an insult that can cause damage to the retinal vasculature or the sensory part of the retinal tissue. And the outcome of this problem is usually significant vision loss. Wow. So is that how most people find out they have retinopathy is they have some vision loss? Uh, it depends on the cause of the problem. Um, if they have, uh, for example, some of the patient, they go and uh, get radiation because of the, they have cancer elsewhere. And they end up having some blurry vision and some vision loss. And most of the time we examine those patients and we found that they have some significant damage to, to the retina. Uh, I think uh, it depends that the manifestation of retinopathy depends on the underlying cause of retinopathy. In some of the patients, this happens very acutely uh, because of, for example, trauma, or they have like a recent uh, radiation. Or in some other patient, which uh, they have like a systemic problem such as diabetes for 20, 30 years at the very earliest stages, usually they don't realize that there is something going on in their eye and that potentially can damage their vision. And most of those patients, they come after like they have significant damage to their retina without knowing that this has been going on for such a long time. So I think the type of the disease is very important in terms of manifestation and how early patient can uh, be symptomatic. We do recommend that a lot of patients with like a systemic disorder, they need to have regular eye exams. And I think the prompt example is diabetic patient. They must have a regular eye exam. Sometimes they don't realize that they have issue, but when we, see, when we show them the picture of the retina, they will be amazed at how much damage and bleeding they have without having any ocular manifestation that they can perceive. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about the um, diabetic retinopathy, because your research um, has has looked at using bone marrow stem cells to treat that. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, I mean, the underlying problem uh, with diabetic retinopathy is most of the vasculature of the retina are severely damaged because of long-term high level of blood sugar. And um, now we know that uh, one of the function of the stem cells in the bone marrow is they migrate and they go to the site of the damage to the vasculature. And they try to fix this vascular damage and repair this vascular damage by the way of engraftment meaning that the stem cells can be incorporated in the structure of the vasculatures, or by the way of producing some chemicals that can help to repair the vasculature. So in a normal healthy individual, this pathway is constantly in effect, and this bone marrow stem cells, they can migrate from your bone marrow into your eyes, and they can maintain the health of your vasculature. Uh, because of the research we have done in the last 10 years, now we know that this migration of this bone marrow stem cells in diabetic patients is compromised. And most of these stem cells, they are not able to enter the eye and also do their job that they were supposed to. And in one of the studies that we did, we wanted to know if we injected the healthy, normal bone marrow-driven stem cells into the eye of diabetic individuals, uh, whether or not we are able to kind of compensate for the lack of the presence of these bone marrow stem cells and we can prevent uh, diabetic retinopathy. So that was the merits behind like, you know, designing uh, and a series of experiments. We use a mouse model of diabetic retinopathy 
And then we harvested this bone marrow driver stem cells uh, from a bone marrow of healthy individual. And uh, throughout the very sophisticated process, we isolated these cells and we then injected these cells into the eye of this uh, uh, mice that uh, they showed the sign of diabetic retinopathy. And we were able to show that with the, in the presence of healthy bone marrow driver stem cells, we are able to slow down the progression of diabetic retinopathy in these animals when we compare them with the animals that didn't receive the bone marrow stem cells at all. And these are very promising results. First of all, it will prove that this, uh, the pathway of this, the protective pathway of the stem cells um, in the health of the retinal vasculature is valid. And we might be able to kind of use this technique to, use, to actually treat this diabetic patient by the way of a stem cell therapy. And hopefully we can not only slow down the progression of disease, also we can move towards uh, repairing this damaged vasculature as well. Wow, so that's encouraging. You focused on retinopathy that was starting to develop. So for the purpose of the research that we did, we actually used the mice that they were diabetic for at least six months. And they did show the sign of diabetic retinopathy. And at a specific time point, we injected those animals actually with the stem cells. And we looked at the progression of diabetic retinopathy in the control group versus a stem cell treated group. And what we found was in the group that they receive a stem cell, they have a slower progression of diabetic retinopathy in a similar condition. Wow. That kind of points towards the, the, the therapeutic effect of these stem cells in treatment of uh, diabetic retinopathy. Thank you to Dr. Amir Yazdanyar, an assistant professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences and neuroscience and physiology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. What you need to know about reflux and esophageal cancer next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Cancer of the esophagus makes up about 1% of the cancers diagnosed in the United States, and its survivability is greatest when it's caught early. Talking with me about esophageal cancer and reflux is Dr. Jason Wallen. He's Division Chief of Thoracic Surgery and the Medical Director of Lung Cancer and the Thoracic Oncology Program at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Wallen. Thank you, Amber. So is heartburn or, or reflux, is that an early warning sign of esophageal cancer? Absolutely not. Uh, heartburn and gastroesophageal reflux are, well, gastroesophageal reflux is the disease. Heartburn is a symptom of that. And, and gastroesophageal reflux disease is one of the most common diseases that affect uh, Americans. And so, a, and as you said, esophageal cancer still remains a very rare cancer. Reflux is one of the principal risk factors for it, but the vast majority of patients with reflux never even get close to developing an esophageal cancer. Because I, when I think of heartburn, I mean, that's something it seems like everyone is going to experience at some point based on something that they ate. But this is GERD or gastroesophageal reflux. That's, that's worse than heartburn, right? So a uh, gastroesophageal reflux, I guess, would be the, the, the disease and heartburn is one of the most common symptoms of it. So there are actually two what we call typical symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux disease. One is heartburn, which we define as a burning pain behind the breastbone. And the second one is regurgitation. And a lot of patients will experience this as a fluid coming up 
out of their esophagus at nighttime when they sleep or sometimes when they bend over. A lot of people will will describe it as vomiting, but it's different than vomiting because there's no nausea beforehand and it's not really an active process. It's almost like like food or acid is just kind of falling out of you. And, uh, and, and it can be quite miserable because people wake up in the middle of the night coughing and sputtering because it, some of it goes into their lungs and it can be a very miserable symptom to suffer through. And so those are the two main symptoms that we see in patients with gastroesophageal reflux disease. And like you mentioned, you know, almost everybody's going to have some heartburn, at least at some point uh, where, you know, they ate the wrong food. And there are a number of foods and, and other uh, activities that people partake in that can predispose them to episodes of gastroesophageal reflux. And just having, you know, an episode doesn't mean you have the disease. Uh, you know, usually we're talking about people who have uh, heartburn and regurgitation so commonly that there's not really anything that they can do about it and they have to be on medications regularly to control it. So is it important to treat heartburn if you have heartburn that is becoming regular? Um, does it need to be treated or is it safe to just suffer through episodes of heartburn? Uh, I don't think it's ever a good idea to just suffer unnecessarily. Um, you know, there are so many treatments for acid reflux that are really safe and, and easy to manage. Um, but, you know, the most important thing is to, before you jump to medications uh, or things you buy from the pharmacy to treat your gastroesophageal reflux disease, is to look at some of the changes you can make in your lifestyle that can uh, make it less likely that you're going to suffer. And, you know, like I said, there are certain foods that you can avoid. Uh, most of us recommend that you avoid fatty meals. You know, really greasy foods can relax the lower esophageal sphincter and allow, you know, things like acid to come up, caffeine and chocolate, you know, it's basically all the things we enjoy, uh, you know, can relax the lower esophageal sphincter. Uh, other things that are more problematic are alcohol and tobacco smoke also can relax the sphincter. Um, there are other uh, lifestyle changes you can make, uh, particularly when people suffer at night, is to avoid eating late at night. I'm sure many people have heard that advice from their doctors, you know, to try and eat three or four hours before lying down. And, and if lying down is a big problem, then uh, sleeping propped up uh, can be very helpful. And, and a lot of people uh, don't do this quite right either because they hear that from their doctor and then they, they throw an extra pillow under their head. But elevating the head, your head doesn't do anything because you know nobody has heartburn in their head. It's, it's their chest that's the problem. And so you need to get you know, a lot of support under your back. And usually pillows don't work that well because even if you can get enough of them, you tend to slide off of them in the middle of the night. And so getting something like a foam wedge, uh, you know, which is available at drugstores or on Amazon is, is a great solution. Uh, the more expensive option is to get uh, one of these electronic beds that goes up and down where you can put your whole back up. Um, and then the cheapest solution is, is to get you a couple of concrete blocks from your local empty lot and put them under the head of the bed and elevate the whole bed up on an angle. And that's particularly helpful for people who sleep on their stomachs or on their sides because, uh, you know, if you sleep on your stomach, it's hard to sleep on a wedge uh, or an incline, you know, so that's a, a, a simple solution to that that uh, a lot of people overlook. So if, if people have done some of these lifestyle modifications and they've been uh, good about their diet and they're taking over-the-counter medicines, but they're still not getting relief, is that when it's time to, to see a physician? Yeah, I think it's always a good idea to mention it to your doctor, even if you are using over-the-counter medications and even getting uh, good relief from over-the-counter medications. Um, but yeah, once you've exhausted, uh, you know, things like antacids like Tums and Rolaids and uh, Alka-Seltzer and, and Maalox and the like, you know, there are other over-the-counter medications, you know, that people take, uh, things we call uh, histamine receptor uh, antagonists, which are things like uh, Pepsid and Tagamet, which people see on the market, or the gener generics are, are uh, um, famotidine and uh, cimetidine. 
those uh, are uh, very inexpensive and very effective and uh, they also have the advantage that they work immediately um, so you can use them either to maintain a symptom-free state or what we call for rescue therapy where if you're in trouble right now and you've got heartburn you can take uh, you know one of these drugs and they will provide you know very rapid relief um, a lot of people uh, are using the newer class of medications which are proton pump inhibitors which are the most powerful uh, anti-reflux medications we have. Uh, we say that, but they don't really prevent reflux. What they do is shut down uh, acid production in the stomach, and they're incredibly powerful for accomplishing that. And they're available over the counter now as well. They're more expensive than some of the other treatments. Um, and they're also not good for rescue, meaning if you take them, they don't usually have an immediate effect. They're much more useful when taken either every day, once a day, or twice a day, uh, as the directions you know will state. Um, and uh, but probably once you get to that point, you, you should be talking to uh, your doctor to make sure that that's the right treatment or that there's no other testing that would be appropriate. Because there are some people who have symptoms, particularly chest discomfort, where there can be other reasons besides uh, acid reflux uh, that are causing that discomfort. And some of them can be dangerous. And one of the red flags is when you're taking, uh, you're doing all the things you're supposed to be doing. You've changed your lifestyle, you're eating right, you know, you've taken some over-the-counter medications and they're not working. That should raise an alarm bell that maybe this is an acid reflux. And that can be a great time to talk to your doctor to make sure that you're actually doing the right thing. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jason Wallen. He's Division Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Upstate and the Medical Director of Lung Cancer in the Thoracic Oncology Program at Upstate. So how do you go about telling whether there's damage to the esophagus if someone's been suffering with this, these symptoms? Um, are there tests to tell if, if there's been damage? Sure. The most common test that we do these days is is refer patients for endoscopy, where uh, usually a gastroenterologist will put a scope down uh, inside the esophagus to have a look. It's very similar to what a lot of patients will have already gone through, which is colonoscopies that a lot of people have, you know, for screening for colon cancer, just obviously going through the other direction. Um, there are other tests that are less invasive, but don't provide quite as much information, like certain types of x-rays. Um, but endoscopy is so widely available, that's largely supplanted these other techniques when it comes for evaluation. I've heard of something called Barrett's esophagus. What, what is that? So Barrett's esophagus is also a relatively rare condition. Uh, Barrett's is the an adaptation of the esophagus to too much acid exposure. So the lining of the esophagus is not designed to be exposed to acid all the time. And so after prolonged exposure, it makes some changes uh, to adapt. And those changes can cause problems. Um, and so Barrett's is, is actually a type of precancerous state. And once people are known to have Barrett's esophagus, which again is quite rare, uh, then uh, it's recommended that they do get endoscopy from time to time. Uh, to make sure that there's no progression of their Barrett's. And that's an absolute indication to start somebody on some type of therapy for their acid reflux. Typically, that's medical therapy, but sometimes even surgeries are recommended. So when is surgery recommended and what are the options? So surgery is recommended for people with acid reflux that cannot be controlled in some other way. Um, you know, when you, when you're, whenever you're treating a disease, there's going to be some side effects. And uh, the nice thing about medications are if you don't like the side effects, usually you can just stop taking the medication and the side effects go away, or you can change to different medication. Um, surgeries are usually used, like I said, when medical therapy fails and patients have symptoms that are still really uh, significant or impairing, uh, despite the fact that they're taking medicines, and, uh, and the surgeries are incredibly effective. But if you have side effects from a surgery that you don't like, then you're in trouble because they're much harder to reverse at that point. And so we'd like to think of surgery as a last resort for patients. But because the surgeries are so effective and because they are quite safe, we don't want people suffering uh, with acid reflux that's poorly controlled. I don't want to put the message out there that if your medications are not working, you should, you should worry about an operation. But I think all of us can understand that we would prefer to avoid surgeries on ourselves if there's something else we could do besides having one. I don't think anybody you know, relishes the thought of going under the knife uh, or under anesthesia for anything if they can avoid it. 
Right. Well, what, let's talk about the options for someone who is diagnosed with esophageal cancer. Is surgery always recommended first? For esophageal cancer? No. Um, so the most important thing to sort out when any patient is diagnosed with a cancer is what is the stage of that cancer. And that's true for every cancer. And almost every cancer gets a number uh, one, two, three, or four, whereas one is the earliest stage where usually it's a small tumor wherever it began. Four means it's spread to other parts of the body. And then there's twos and threes, which either maybe is a big tumor or maybe there's some lymph nodes involved or perhaps a combination of the two. And it varies, you know, from cancer to cancer, you know, what the details of that uh, of that staging system are. But the stage is really important to determine what the most appropriate treatment is. And when you're talking about esophageal cancer, uh, if it's a very early stage, which is certainly when you'd like to find any cancer, then surgery can be the first option. Uh, it's not the only option, but it's generally the preferred. Uh, as cancer becomes more advanced, then other treatments become important as well, such as chemotherapy, radiation therapy, even immunotherapy. Um, and when you get to the most advanced stages, then surgery doesn't have a lot of relevance uh, at all, at least in terms of, uh, of curing somebody or removing a cancer, but surgery can often be helpful to improve symptoms uh, that a cancer uh, can provide. So seeing a thoracic surgeon when you have an esophageal cancer is probably the right thing for most patients at some point during their disease process. So someone with esophageal cancer might have a thoracic surgeon like yourself taking care of them, but what other medical specialists would likely also be involved? So most patients, unfortunately, with esophageal cancer do show up with relatively advanced disease, usually in the stage two to three range. And that's because it is difficult to detect at an early stage because most people don't have symptoms until the stage becomes more advanced. And so it's very common that a patient will also have a medical oncologist, somebody who might provide them chemotherapy, uh, and a radiation oncologist, uh, somebody who provide radiation treatment to the esophagus as well. And most of our patients who end up getting surgery also end up getting some form of chemotherapy and radiation treatment as well to provide them the best chance at cure and long-term survival. In general, is this a cancer that grows slowly or quickly and is it likely to spread? I always tell patients, if you had to pick a cancer to get, this is not the one. Uh, they do tend to be aggressive. Uh, they do tend to spread early, um, uh, which is one of the problems we have with treatment. And, uh, and it tends to be resistant to a lot of the treatments we provide. That doesn't mean we don't do them. It doesn't mean they're not helpful. It just means that treatment is not as effective for esophageal cancer as it is for many of the other cancers that we treat. And so it, it is important to not ignore symptoms and to seek help. Uh, when you might have an esophageal cancer, it's incredibly important when you know you have Barrett's esophagus to adhere to the recommended uh, surveillance, which is the endoscopies that a gastroenterologist will perform to keep track of your Barrett's to make sure that it doesn't progress or that if it does progress, that it gets treated appropriately. Um, you know, the, the, the chances that these things happen are, are, are low, but the consequences are high. And so it's really, really important to mark your calendars and make sure that you get, you know, all of your diagnostic testing done and that you don't ignore any changes in your symptoms. So let's go over the symptoms of esophageal cancer. What's important for people to be looking out for? So Amber, that's a great question. And the most important symptom for an esophageal cancer is difficulty swallowing. And when we say that, you know, we're talking about any difficulty with food passing from the time that it actually passes past your tongue and until the time that it actually reaches your abdomen. So uh, most patients will suffer with some form of a blockage somewhere behind their breastbone. They'll feel it. Sometimes it can be high even in the neck, but most of the time it's lower down and patients will feel the food getting stuck. A lot of patients will start modifying their diet uh, because of this trouble and they start avoiding things like meats and breads uh, or anything that's difficult to chew. And, and some patients by the time, that time they come to see us have even gotten down to a pureed or even a liquid diet uh, because they're struggling so much and it's uh, these I can't stress enough how important these symptoms are. These are not normal and, uh, and really require prompt medical attention to figure out why people are having these kinds of problems. But it's tricky because they do tend to sneak up on patients. We 
talked about that this can be a fast growing cancer, uh, but the symptoms kind of come on slowly and patients, you know, sometimes they make these changes in their diets very slowly too, and they forget that they've even done them or why they've done them. And so uh, keeping track and being aware uh, of when, you know, you can't swallow a steak or, uh, or, or a piece of bread, uh, that's a real problem because you ought to be able to do that. And there are no good reasons why you shouldn't be able to. Thank you to Dr. Jason Wallen, who leads Upstate's Thoracic Oncology Program and Thoracic Surgery Division. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Eric V.D. Luft retired as curator of historical collections at Upstate Medical University. He is a publisher and has written, edited, or translated over 650 publications. The sonnet he sent us is a gut punch reality check to the pandemic's effects. Here is whose lots are worst? Those never sure if hands and face are clean? Those barred from funerals of dear ones gone? Returning tourists caged in quarantine? Those with no toilet paper in their john? Bored athletes, teams, and fans deprived of play? Those who must order food from Amazon? Poor low-wage workers now without their pay? Heroic nurses? Hermits off the grids? Scared, battered wives who cannot run away? Sick parents with 11 homebound kids? Courageous first responders sensing dread? Neglected homeless, hopeless on the skids? You think your lot is worst? Then stay in bed. But those whose lots are really worst are dead. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, an overview of prostate cancer. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm -hmm.